Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her powerful new book, Women and Gender in Iraq, Between Nation Building and Fragmentation, Zahra Ali presents a detailed and fascinating account of Muslim feminist discourses and politics in modern Iraq. Women and Gender in Iraq represents historical anthropology at its best. It combines careful attention to the historical contexts and contingencies that have shaped feminist politics in Iraq with an intimate ethnography of the major actors and conditions that continue to drive the narrative of feminist politics and horizons in the country. In our conversation, we talked about the formations of urban middle-class gender politics and women's political activism in Iraq before and after the Ba'ath period, the communalization of the Iraqi political system and its impact on women political activism in the country, the pressures and fissures generated by transnational networks of social and political activism, the NGOization of women's activism in Iraqi Kurdistan, and the importance of this book in relation to the currently unfolding political developments in Iraq. This lucidly written book, in addition to attracting the interest of a range of scholars, will also make a great text for courses on Islam, gender, Middle East politics and history, feminist thought, sociology, and anthropology. Here now is my conversation with Professor Zahra Ali. Hello, Zara. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. How are you? Very good, Zara. Thank you uh, so much for uh, coming on the New Books Network on New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you, as I was saying before we sort of started recording this conversation, uh, really powerful and incredibly uh, detailed and theoretically rich uh, book, uh, which uh, uh, is, of course, in the present thank moment, you. especially uh, uh, poignant and pertinent. So we have a thank you so much. It's so it's so great to be you know to talk about the book with someone who read it thoroughly. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. So we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. So uh, Zahra, could you share a bit with us about a uh, how you became a scholar um, interested in this topic, and then b how you got to write this particular book. Sure. So thank you for the question, actually. So also because as a feminist, I think it's very important for us scholars to always situate ourselves politically uh, uh, in terms of, you know, how we position ourselves in relation to the topic. And I think everyone should do it, not only women, not only people of color. Um, so, so first of all, I, I want to say that I, I came to, I mean, being an academic or considering myself a scholar, I really came from uh, being an activist first. I was, I was, so I grew up in France. I'm, I'm the daughter of um, 
a family of political exiles. My, my parents had to leave Iraq and, and became political exiles in France. Uh, and so I was very active from, from a very young age, actually. I mean, in different kind of circles uh, in France, but mainly I would say in anti-racist and, and feminist activism, right? And, and, and Muslim activism as well, Muslim type of activism. And, and when I was um, 17, actually, we, we funded me and, and Christine Delphi, who is uh, really the one, I mean, she was in her 70s at the time. So just to give you an idea of the generational gap and what it represents, right? And Christine Delphi, I mean, is still, and she was uh, from the 70s, uh, the one who theorized um, uh, um, le féminisme matérialiste. So, so I think in English it's materialistic feminism, right? And so we funded the very first collective. It was in 2005 at the time, or 2006, uh, the very first anti-racist feminist collective that gathered Muslim women, non-Muslim women, uh, um, uh, I mean, around anti-racist, anti-Islamophobia, uh, uh, feminist kind of, of, of discourse, right? So I came from, from that sphere. And, and when I, um, I started to take myself a little bit seriously, when I, I moved from, from kind of the town where I grew up and I was very active to Paris and to do a master's at l'école des hautes études en sciences sociales, which was kind of an experience for, for me, you know, arriving in Paris in a, in, a, in, a, in a school that is a beautiful school to study sociology and social sciences, but I, that is so white. So at the time I was wearing the hijab, I was really one of the few Arab and, and definitely the very first muhajjaba to enter l'école des hautes études en sociales. And I, I did a master's in sociology with kind of a, a, a major in, in, in gender studies. And what I did at the time uh, was that I, I, I did an ethnography of uh, Muslim feminism feminist activism in France. I basically did an ethnography of the move, the different movements and networks in which I was involved. So this is how I kind of started, right? And then, um, then I mean, many things were happening, of course, in Iraq, uh, especially in 2006 and 2007. Uh, I mean, in my household, we, we had this dream, like so many families of exile to go back to Iraq, to go back to our country. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, after 2003, of course, I mean, what happened was that we, uh, I mean, of course, it was a terrible uh, uh, imperialist U.S. invasion and occupation, but also what happened was even worse afterwards, which was uh, a sectarian and civil war, right? And so I, 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 you know, we lost many members of my family in, in these events, uh, um, including my, my own father. So at the time, the kind of dream of going back to the homeland, right, started to fade, to fade away. Uh, but a few years later, things started to calm down and we were visiting our family uh, and we were visiting them uh, or seeing them in, in the neighborhood, na uh, neighboring countries at the time. However, I decided to go and, and, and settle there, right? Not only to visit, but really to live there uh, in the fall 2010. And, and this is how I actually started this research project. So, you know, I was a, a very active feminist in France and, and I was very interested in understanding what uh, feminist activism in Iraq looked like, right? So I started uh, interviewing activists, uh, researching activists. So the kind of, of let's say, concepts or notion that uh, I started with were to study the articulation or the imbrication or the intersection of issues of gender, uh, issues of nationhood, sense of belonging, etc., uh, issues of state, state politics in, re in relation to, to gender and religion. I mean, this is how I started. However, uh, at the start, I mean, at the beginning, 
what I really want, I'm, I'm a sociologist, but I'm very much an ethnographer. So my idea was really to let the categories emerge from the context and not to be too clear about the arguments there, right? When I started and to, to really let the categories emerge. And I, I also started having in mind what exists in the literature in terms of, of uh, Iraqi studies or, or what is produced in, 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 rela- I mean, in, on, on Iraq and in relation to Iraq. And I was uh, noticing that that most of what is produced is produced by really the older generation of, of Iraqis, uh, people who are not in touch with the realities uh, uh, of the post-2003, basically. And, and unfortunately, often not necessarily very interested. I mean, th- there was this kind of discourse that is changing now because we li- we're experiencing a revolution, but there was this kind of discourse that Iraq really ended after 2003. There's nothing interesting there. <laughs> and, 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 and otherwise, uh, there was also another type of li- literature that was interested, but, but, but many scholars uh, couldn't go there for many reasons. A, a lot of dias- uh, I mean, Iraqis from the diaspora had less touch with Iraq since since some some of them since decades, right? So so there was really no research uh, based on actual field work on, on on you know on on an ethnography or on 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 direct contact with what was going on. So and and even in Iraq, I mean, in in the literature uh, in relation to. I mean, there was an absence of literature, basically, in Arabic or in produced in Iraq in relation, I mean, to the exception of a few books, but the, there was really nothing that was really taking a feminist standpoint or even just a gender lens uh, on uh, on the Iraqi context. And, 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 and so my, my, my initial idea was, okay, we have... These, these books that uh, provide a history of Iraq and what I want to do is really provide a her story of Iraq. <laughs> this is a very simple idea, but, but I, and, and, and I thought that starting with interviewing uh, women political activists uh, about how they experience, so it's kind of a people's story of, right? But, pe- but from the point of view of women and not any woman, from the point of view of women who develop some kind of social and political activity. Activism. So this is kind of how I started. Mm-hmm. Terrific. That's a great uh, segue into uh, the next question, uh, which also is sort of a two-part question. Uh, as a broad sort of framing, uh, you know, there are multiple sites that you focus on and the multiple kinds of actors that you were just talking about now and different kinds of themes that come up throughout uh, the book. And, and what you said actually really does... Um, shine throughout the book that it does seem like a project which evolved in the process of of the ethnography and and so on uh, so i was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners you know just the key sites and uh, places actors and themes and then how you would describe the central sort of conceptual intervention of this project especially the one thing that i found really striking and uh, you know an argument that you made very convincingly is that you know, you really complicate this binary between the local and transnational feminism by looking at this relationship in much more dynamic ways. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just speak to that larger conceptual intervention also as part of your answer. 
Sure. I mean, there's so many things to say. It's so hard to actually condense in like a, a few sentences, but, but it's true. So, so, um, so I started with this kind of concept, you know, issues of gender, issues of nationhood, issues of state and religion. Uh, and, uh, and of course, I, I, was, I was very interested in uh, postcolonial, I mean, very influenced and shaped. My thinking was very influenced and, and shaped by a postcolonial and transnational feminist kind of understanding. So the, the kind of idea of how I would uh, simply uh, uh, define what transnational feminist understanding is or approach is, it, it would be to say that instead of, of of it's it's kind of breaking with the international feminism so the trans uh, um instead of the of the inter would be to uh, consider that women are uh, connected uh, with each other not through a, an abstract neoliberal uh, kind of white middle class notion of what it is to be a woman right but there are i mean women and people are connected because we live in i mean modernity is the produce of uh, patriarchal uh, colonial capitalism right and this is actually the system of power in which we live all of us right so so the idea is also i think there was i was also uh, reacting and 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 i think that because the literature uh, that is uh, targeting kind of orientalist views uh, based of course on 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 edouard said's work uh, tend to be very focused on uh, on basically on the here rather than the there so a lot of postcolonial literature uh, is about is is really based on criticizing Western hegemony, Western discourses, uh, but what is going on actually in the there, right? In in the places that are being orientalized, it not it is not necessarily the focus of of a lot of postcolonial studies. I mean, for for also disciplinary reasons as well. I mean, postcolonial studies also emerge out of cultural studies, so it's it's also very often the studies of text, of literature, etc. So there was this idea that okay, this is kind of the systems of power that I have in mind, and what I want to do is. It's not only to say that we, we should study the here and the, I mean, we should study the there instead of the, the, the here, right? But we should actually study both at the same time because it's all happening at the same time. And, 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 and I think as scholars, as feminist scholars, we still struggle. Uh, uh, and it's, it's also related to our positionalities. I mean, a lot of scholars, I think, are based uh, in, in Northern America and are very kind of concerned with addressing uh, Orientalist or neo-Orientalist views, right? And, and this is t t totally understandable. But when you actually want to develop something that is more transnational, something that when you, you really base your theoretical ideas um, on the ethnography that you are doing, you realize that you can't understand what's going on in Iraq, uh, uh, how feminist activists uh, develop their agenda, develop their repertoires of action, uh, if you don't relate it, of course, to what happened after 2003, but also in the 90s, to the, the, uh, the, 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 like the, the general kind of social, political context. And as well, I mean, when we, to, to, to give a very concrete example in, uh, when it comes to um, women's uh, political activism and, and women's rights activism generally, 
you can't understand the repertoires of action and what, what feminists are doing if you don't look very carefully at the networks of funds and money <laughs> that is, uh, uh, that is circulating in Iraq since 2003 and that targets specifically, uh, women and gender issues, right? And this, for, for, to understand that, well, you have to, uh, look at global and, 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 and local at the same time, right? It's all intertwined and it has to be analyzed at the same time. And so, uh, uh, in, you know, to, to answer also your, your question on, on the, 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 my attempt to go beyond uh, secular versus religious. I mean, that, that was very essential also because I, as I said in the beginning, I also ca came uh, uh, with a kind of diasporic understanding of Iraq uh, when I started my research because I grew up in France and in France I was developing really a kind of Muslim feminist standpoint, right? Uh, and then when I arrived in Iraq and started doing ethnography, I mean, my position, and also getting involved within, within these forms of this type of activism and living there really uh, my I, I really added complexity and and my positionality started to change um, and so my idea was to say that I mean, when you look at the literature again, uh, you have a literature that is focused on kind of secular forms of feminism, and you have a literature that emerged uh, a little bit later in the 90s that um, uh, focus on, on Muslim women or Islamist women articulated, uh, articulating certain type of, if, if not feminism, but women's rights discourse, right? And, and there's very few literature that really study uh, and, and analyze in a frame that is very much relational, thinking that actually everything is kind of way more complex and we, we need to look at the in-betweenness, right? And, and really secular doesn't really, I mean, has to be contextualized because it doesn't necessarily mean what uh, a scholar ha uh, has in mind, ha have in mind. And the religious as well doesn't necessarily, uh, I mean, what do we mean actually by religious? <laughs> this is the thing. So saying that we need to go beyond these categories is, is, is really add complexity to these categories and contextualize them. And, and when you contextualize them, you, you realize, for example, that uh, in Iraq, especially after what happened in 2006 and 7, you know, and, and the very fragmentation of, uh, of um, women's legal rights through the issue of the personal status code, the questioning of, uh, um, of the frame, the personal status code, the, which is a legal frame that gathers most of women's legal rights, right, that is based in Iraq on um, Muslim jurisprudence, both Sunni and Shia. And so after 2003, uh, straight away, we could see how the sectari sectarianization, or some people use the Lebanization <laughs> of Iraq, you know, the, the very institutionalization of a political, by, by the U.S. invasion of a political system based on, on, commun on communal identity. So you, uh, I mean, the whole system after 2003 became based on, on uh, either your, uh, your ethnicity, your, your religion or your sect, right? And this had a direct impact on, on women and uh, on women's rights because straight away, a few months after the invasion, uh, the political, uh, uh, one of the main political group that came, of course, with uh, the Americans, um, a, a Shia Islamist political party, um, um, 
straight away question the personal status code on um, uh, sectarian uh, basis. So the proposition was, we at the time in 2003, we should abolish the personal status code and have a um, sectarian-based personal status code. And of course, this was all done within this liberal type of, of, of uh, really brought with, with, with the kind of, I think, vocabulary that uh, most of the consultants and the American advisors came with and, and that Iraqis were using, I mean, the new Iraqi elite was using, which is, this is all under the name of, of, of freedom of religion, of, you know, of this very liberal <laughs> principle of, of being free to practice our religion, to practice, to, to be uh, also to, to assert our identity as, as Shias, etc. So straight away, there was an attempt to actually, abort it. I mean, a personal status quo that is pretty progressive that has been through a lot of change and I talk about the different tra- changes it has been through in my book and so uh, but but pretty progressive and I mean also the questioning of it the, was was made by very conservative parties so the fear by, uh, expressed by many Iraqi feminists was that uh, well if we replace it I mean first of all we're going to lose essential rights but I mean, there is there are good chances that we're going to lose them in favor of rights that are very conservative. And this and clearly what happened in 2014, I mean, this attempt then was made was kind of included in the in the Constitution, uh, in the Article 41 that opens the possibility for Iraqis to uh, propose uh, alternative or sectarian based personal status code. So. I mean, it's not it's not implemented, but the Article 41 of the 2005 Constitution really um, uh, opened this possibility. However, after 2005, several attempts were made, always by Shia Islamist political parties. And uh, in 2014, uh, you pro- you maybe I mean, some some people who kind of follow uh, these issues uh, have um, heard about the Jafari law, right? The proposition of the Jafari law, and, and Jafari law is the name of um, I mean. Jafari come from uh, the Jafari jurisprudence, which is the main Shia jurisprudence, right? And if you if you look at the Jafari law proposal made by Shia Islamist political parties, uh, you uh, you can straight away uh, uh, really notice that there is, of course, uh, uh, um, I mean, loss of very basic things such as a minimum age of marriage for girls, right? Uh, so, so Sin al in this Jafari law proposition is something between nine and eleven years old. So we're really far from the eighteen years old of of the personal status code, and also the possibility to, um, I mean, the the legal the the, the possibility to uh, of what we call bil Arab zawaj sayyid, which is something that is really done. I mean, since the nineties and, spe- and since two thousand and three, which is informal forms of marriage ad- of of unions of marriage unions outside of the court that are performed by, um, uh, uh, I mean, a, a religious uh, representative, right? So, I mean, and, and these are all informal f- forms of marriage that don't guarantee essential rights for women. So, so I mean, uh, uh, feminist activists have been mobilizing around this uh, uh, personal status code. And this is, this is also, to go back to this discussion on secular versus religious, this is also when you, you understand that in this specific context, the secular, actually, for many women's rights activists, I mean, don't necessarily mean the non-religious because, I mean, very few actually women activists uh, um, would advocate for a complete secularization of the personal status code. 
but it means secular in this uh, in this specific context or debate means non-sectarian right it means and and actually the word that is commonly used in iraq by feminist activists it, it is medani zawaj al medani right so it means civil more than secular and then you also understand that religious actually is more complicated than that so you cannot say in iraq that for example religious activists uh, or islamist activists are all for this um, uh, like for the 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 reform or the sectarianization of the personal status code because when you look carefully it's only shia islamists who are who who for for many reasons for i mean in order of course to assert uh, um, shia identity etc whereas when you interview obviously sunni islamists you realize that they are they they defend a very uh, um, i mean they defend exactly the same position uh, and they align with their their secular uh, uh, feminist colleagues, right? So, so looking at what is going on in terms of of, of feminist activism uh, through the lens of uh, Islamist versus secular, I mean, doesn't mean anything. You really don't understand anything because you you really have to look carefully at what's going on. And also another argument that I'm making, and this is really the ethnography that allowed me to do that, is uh, when I was doing ethnography, I was I was so I interviewed. A, a wide range of activists, activists from the age of, I mean, the younger activists I interviewed, what, I, th- I think she was 20, 21 years old, and the, and the, the, uh, the, the older activists, uh, I think she was 70, in her, in her late 70s, and unfortunately, she, she passed away uh, two years ago. Um, and these activists, I mean, that I interviewed were from diverse groups. So the, the kind of uh, civil society groups not affiliated to political parties doing social work, political work. But also I interviewed Islamists, I interviewed Kurdish activists, I mean, interviewed all the range that, 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 that I was uh, observing and, 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 and I wanted really to, um, to make justice to the diversity of activism that was existing, right? And I was seeing something interesting, uh, which is that uh, post-2003 uh, Iraqi women's rights activists is, is, has a lot of, I mean, ac- across these differences, Kurdish, Islamist, Sunni, Islamist, Shia, etc., uh, you have uh, a uniformized or you have certain discourses that are repeated over and all over again. And that has to do with the networks of, of, of funding that all activists were getting from UN Women, from USAID, from, from, from I mean, various uh, networks, right? All targeting, I mean, all basically training activists uh, to gender, gender mainstreaming uh, type of, of um uh, uh, of campaign, human rights campaign, etc. So it's very interesting because even the, the very hardcore conservative Shia Islamist woman that I was interviewing had a similar kind of discourse, not, not on everything, but on mainly on these issues of gender mainstreaming and, and, and human rights and, and, you know, this whole kind of, of very, uh, uniformized and, and, and very also, I think um, politically empty and depoliticized uh, uh, notions of rights that that are spread not only in Iraq but all over the region. Right, this idea of uh, so people people were trained after two thousand and three in such a ridiculous way about you know how to vote and how to write a constitution, uh, and this is of course I mean this was all you know kind of uh, uh, the 
use in order to justify this imperialist uh, uh, um, invasion and occupation that is supposed to, uh, uh, you know, liberate people and 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 provide democracy, etc. So so it's interesting because when I attended certain trainings in Baghdad, I mean, you you could really see the the the. I mean, I would say it's 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 of course it's um it it carries uh, um, a type of uh, I think. Um, I mean, violence, epistemic violence, right? When you see people who have been invaded uh, and occupied, being trained how to vote and being trained, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in human rights, etc. But at the same time, it also created a kind of uniformity, right, among activists. And you could you could see that. Well, at the end of the day, if you look at a middle class, uh, educated uh, Iraqi feminist activist, uh, in terms of a general understanding of what uh, gender mean or women's rights mean, you would you would find a lot of commonalities actually, and and what you what you perceived maybe in terms of the of of kind of the outside look of the activist as being. Uh, a backlash, a secular versus Islamic uh, Islamist ba- backlash is actually, I mean, not really the case if you look at what the activists are doing on the ground. Terrific. And very briefly, Zara, could you also uh, just quickly talk a bit about the key sort of uh, sites uh, on which the ethnography focuses? I know it's not just, uh, yeah, if you could briefly say that, then we'll move to the next question. Sure. So I, uh, what I've done is throughout, uh, in a period of, of two years where I was, uh, I was mainly uh, uh, based in, in Iraq. And uh, so I did an, an ethnography of women's rights groups in mainly in Baghdad. Uh, uh, so where I was actually based. Uh, and as well uh, in the cities of Erbil and Slemanien, in Iraqi Kurdistan. And I, I dedicate a chapter of my book uh, on Iraqi Kurdistan. Later, I, I, I didn't really include it as the core of the book, but it, it helped me as, you know, a, a book um, when you write a book by the time you write it and, and the time it gets published there, there's so much uh, time right it takes so long so later I also and I try to include it a little bit in the book um, I also did um, field work in in the south of Iraq mainly in in the cities of Nejef, Karbala uh, and Nasriya um, and I kind of add it uh, in the chapter where I talk about civil society activism and and how the protest movement has influenced uh, feminist activism in Iraq since, let's say, 2000. So uh, the the core of my fieldwork was done between 2010 and 2012. And the kind of new fieldwork uh, in Nejef, Karbala, Nasriya and Baghdad was done uh, in 2016 uh, and 17. Terrific. Now, the first two chapters provide the sort of historical uh, context of the ethnography, and uh, both both uh, pre and sort of uh, within the the Ba'ath period. So I was wondering if you could uh, uh, talk a bit about the first chapter, and uh, if you could, uh, I know this was really a massive and interesting chapter, but perhaps some highlights of the sort of key moments and political developments uh, prior to the Ba'ath period that are crucial to understanding uh, the formations of uh, urban middle class gender politics and women's uh, political activism in Iraq. So, if you could speak a bit about that first chapter. Yeah, thank you, thank you, and it's 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 very good that you actually situated in terms of class. Yes, it's definitely uh, urban, educated middle class people that I interviewed and, and that I'm talking about. Definitely. Uh, so, if you look, if you want to have kind of a, an overview of what 
feminist activism and, and women's social and political activism in Iraq has been in, in uh, since really the formation of the state. I mean, I really start um, in, um, in the book, I try to start in the formation of the state in the 1920s because I, I think it's, it's a very uh, important uh, moment. And um, however, I don't necessarily uh, delve into too much details because uh, most of what I, 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 I write in the book is, of course, um, uh, supported by the, 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 the historical literature on Iraq, but it's also mainly supported, uh, uh, I mean, uh, based on, on feminist uh, words as well, how, how these women that I interviewed experienced these different periods. So, so, so I talk a little bit about what happened in the 20s and the 30s. However, I think that I start uh, uh, seriously talking about uh, women's activism in the in the 50s, really, and with with this older activist whose uh, whose mother uh, funded uh, uh, one of the the, the major um, uh, Iraqi feminist group, Rabat uh, al-Mar al-Iraqiya, the Iraqi Women's League, right? And so, if you look at the 50s, we had a very, I mean, strong feminist uh, movement in Iraq, uh, and um, if you if you kind of compare it with the with with the region, the, the specificity of Iraq is that uh, uh, the most kind of powerful feminist group were the anti-imperialist uh, lefty leftist type of, of 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 feminist group. Whereas if you look at other 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 countries, the um, you you can see that the nationalistic uh, type of, of, of feminist group uh, or the feminist groups that are related to uh, uh, nationalist political groups are, uh, uh, I mean, are very powerful in the region. But in Iraq, actually in the 50s up to, I think, really the, the, the perhaps the late 70s, early 80s, really the political culture was dominated by the anti-imperialist left, right? And we had uh, in Iraq the, the first... Um, Women Arab minister was an Iraqi woman. She was a gynecologist, Nazih Delaini. Uh, she was a member of the Communist Party. She was an, really a, 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 a leftist activist, uh, and she was the, the the minister of the municipalities under uh, Abdel Karim Qasim. Uh, who who was the the figure of the 1958 uh, revolution slash coup, <laughs> but it was a revolutionary moment in Iraqi history that you know uh, uh, overthrew the regime that was backed by uh, by the British right at the time. So so the formulation and that's very interesting to remember uh, 58 and, and specific specifically 59 uh, as a very pivotal moment for for women's rights and also women's rights mobilization because it was the moment. Uh, when feminists were included in the process of the negotiation of their rights. So there was, I mean, in the 30s and the 50s, in, in, in the 40s, uh, the personal status code, so this legal frame that gathers most of women's legal rights, uh, there were a lot of drafts that were, I mean, discussed, uh, especially in the 40s. Uh, but it's really uh, uh, in this frame of this revolutionary moment uh, that actually Nazihad Nazi Delaimi and other feminist activists participated to the drafting of the personal status code, which is really, I think, I mean, one of the reasons why it was, at the time, one of the most progressive personal status code in the region, right? Um, so, so then we, I mean, in the 60s, we also had uh, uh, of course, we had in '63 a, a very violent, the very violent first uh, uh, Iraqi uh, Ba'ath 
coup. Uh, that was always targeting actually leftists and anti-imperialist activists and always weakening the most uh, radical part of the left, right? And that was a coup that was, of course, US-backed. Uh, and uh, however, I mean, feminist activists carried on uh, working uh, even after 68, which is the second Ba'ath coup, uh, that was really, I mean, a, a bloodshed. Uh, um, a lot of feminists that I have interviewed experienced it or have a family member who experienced it, who experienced torture or who had to leave the country at the time. So, so this discussion actually that I'm trying to have in the book around uh, this, um, around how, how you can actually talk about feminism in the frame of authoritarianism, right? So then in the 60s, I mean, uh, there are different uh, there are different moments of the Ba'ath regime. I think that there, there is the Ba'ath one, let's say, <laughs> the first period of the Ba'ath regime, which is until, let's say, the war with Iran, where, I mean, uh, when the Ba'ath regime was uh, really uh, aligning itself to the kind of nationalistic, uh, uh, modernist type of project, and it was um, developing a kind of discourse that is definitely pretty secular and definitely and, and so using of course developing a gender nationalistic modernist discourse right so at the time uh, uh, feminists uh, who managed to kind of navigate uh, uh, within this uh, I mean under this very authoritarian regime managed still to 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 gain certain rights and 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 the personal status code was reformed in the 70s in in ways I mean in terms of of, of for example banning polygamy or banning uh, marriage outside of the the court, uh, of the courts, right? Uh, uh, so, um, and, 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 and in a lot of details uh, in the personal status code that can be read as progressive uh, um, uh, gains at the time, right? However, and, and this is this is when uh, it's interesting because if you look at uh, the personal status code, not only in Iraq but also I think in Egypt and, and and throughout the region, if you look carefully, if if you had like a map of the different uh, reforms made, you know, of the personal status code, you have a map of the the ideological development of of the country in question. So seventies, it was I mean it was also in the context of an economic boom, right? Uh, uh, I mean we uh, the, the state was. Uh, had the monopoly of the oil resources. The state was very rich. Uh, we had excellent uh, uh, education system, excellent health system. I mean, when I look at pictures of, of my mom, of members of my family in the 70s, uh, they, they, they were living, the middle class was living the, the good life. And actually, my two parents are from this generation. Both their families are from the south of Iraq. And, and they are from this generation that moved to Baghdad, to the capital, and, and, and became part of, of the middle class in the capital, right? And, and it was at the time in the 70s, full employment. So you can't really disconnect the progressive gain of the personal status quo to this general social and economic uh, moment of, of prosperity, right, in Iraq. And so then, of course, the, the big kind of, of change happened with the war against Iran. Because the war against Iran, uh, um, I mean, it, it killed thousands of, of a uh, hundred of thousands of, of, of individuals and mostly men, of course, but, but really reorganized the society. Women were, uh, had the responsibility when men were, uh, uh, um, fighting against Iran. Women had the responsibility of the household and they had to work and they had to basically manage the society and, and the family when, uh, uh, when, uh, men were at uh, at the battlefield, right? Uh, and 
most, I mean, a lot of uh, of the the state oil resources were dedicated to uh, uh, fighting uh, to the fight against uh, uh, Iran, and and it weakened the regime. And it's interesting when you look at uh, the kind of gender discourses and gender politics of the regime in the 80s um, became really to be very ethnicized, you know, in the sense that this this is also the start of the anti-Shia, uh, you know, the Tabaiya campaign, anti-Kurdish campaign, all all the forces uh, that were considered as uh, associated to Iran, right? And 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 we had uh, a very uh, kind of racist and and sexist laws uh, uh, implying, for example, um, uh, um, obliging or, or proposing to a man a certain amount of money that was a huge amount of money for the time uh, if he divorced a woman who is a tabaiya. Tabaiya mean that this person is supposedly uh, from Iranian of Iranian origin, right? So this is when really the kind of sectarian, ethnic, uh, uh, and and the shift in gender politics. So so if you look at the imagery, of course, in in context of war all over the world, this is not something that is specific to Iraq. You have this figure of the very masculine soldier protecting the nation and loyal to the nation, and you have. You have uh, uh, women who are the nation, right? Women and children who are the nation that uh, have to be protected, etc. Right? So all this ter- terminology really, and and it has an impact, of course, in the personal status codes and in in also the reform of the penal law, um, in terms of issues of honor crimes, etc. So this is really the eighties. Uh, uh, a process really started, right? Uh, of of a shift towards a more conservative notions of of, of gender norms and relation, and. And, and really, the, the the most the most um, enormous kind of of impact uh, a shift that happened was ninety one. First of all, of course, the devastating uh, bombing of Iraq by the U.S. Uh, led coalition, really devastating. That uh, destroyed uh, essential infrastructures. Uh, uh, um, that was nothing like surgical sh- strikes. And also, of course, the the sanctions that followed that were absolutely absolutely devastating there were really uh, what uh, uh, jay gordon is in his book called invisible war it was an invisible war it was really uh, it was a war the sanctions really destroyed the middle class uh, plunged the country into poverty destroyed the uh, weakened the state and its institution on which all the society and women rely on you know a good health system a good education education system uh, um, uh, um, I mean, a strong kind of job market where, where men and women, I mean, in, in Iraq, mostly women uh, were employed in the public sector, right? So the really collapse of the public, public sector impacted on women. And this is, again, when you can see very conservative kind, kind of, of legal reforms and gender politics being uh, implemented by the regime. This is when the Allahu Akbar was added in the Iraqi flag and the regime really aligned itself with kind of Islamist politics, you know, in the region. Region as well, and it's it's Saddam. It's under Saddam that this uh, imposition of a mahram, right, a male relative, was imposed for women who want to travel. So all types of conservative and and really, I think it just reshaped Iraqi society. I mean, the sanctions reshaped Iraqi society. It really reshaped the whole social fabric of the society or social norms, you know, uh, uh, everyday life, right? When, when a whole society is plunged into a, uh, a stage of survival. Um, and so this is what happened before 2003, right? So, so Iraqis have 
already been through so much trauma, so much loss, and Iraqi women have been already through like different shift, shift right, in, 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 in gender politics and ideology. So really, 2003 and what happened afterwards really exacerbated a process of, you know, gender norms, uh, conservative gender norms, uh, 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 and, 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 and sectarianization uh, and fragmentation of the society along ethno-sectarian uh, and religious lines that kind of already started before. That's actually a great transition uh, to the next question. Um, I was wondering if you could shift to the post-invasion uh, period and uh, uh, if I could focus on a very interesting category that you introduce in the book, uh, what you call the communalization of the Iraqi political system, which is what you were just talking about also. And I was wondering if we continue this thread and talk a bit, Zara, about how this communalization of the Iraqi political system has impacted and shaped uh, women's political activism in the country uh, in the post-2003 uh, period. Yes, so so as I mentioned a little bit before, um, um, the U.S.-led invasion and the new political uh, Iraqi political elite that it brought in 2003 put in place a system that uh, is based on on ethnic, religious, and sectarian belonging. So in Iraq after 2003, you're not a political activist, so you can't be represented in the parliament, for example, as just a political activist. You need to um, uh, you you kind of political identity is based on your communal identity. So you are a Shia activist, uh, an Arab or a Kurdish or uh, a Sunni activist, right? But you're not an activist on the basis of your ideological, uh, for example, a leftist or, or a right wing. Or... So, so, so basically what happened is an institutionalization. If Imagine if in the US you institutionalize racism. And I mean, I mean of course, there are different forms of institutional racism in the US. But imagine that this is the basis of your political system, right? That you decide that uh, the president has to be from a certain community, the vice president has to be from a certain community. And that that's a total break in terms of, it's a total shift in terms of Iraq's uh, um, contemporary political history. It, uh, I mean, of course, uh, sectarian identities, communal identities has, has always existed and been important and, and been also used by, by, by the Ba'ath regime in different ways. However, to... Uh, um, Establish a political regime based on this identity really fragmented. Uh, I mean, plunged the country into a sectarian war, and and um, th there was also the debasification de uh, uh, um, uh, so process that was um, uh, decided by uh, the CPA, the Co Coalition Provisional Authority, uh, that basically emptied. I mean, disbanded the army and 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 really provoked uh, uh, and institutionalized uh, an anti. Uh, Sunni politics, right, uh, really created a political system that excluded uh, Sunni Arabs. Uh, um, so for the first time, uh, interestingly, because when you think about it, for the first time in Iraq's history, people who were on the mar at the margin, right, at the so the Kurdish and the Shia <laughs> became, through a U.S. military invasion and occupation, uh, at the center of this power. 
And and I talk about it in the book how these two political forces uh, came with kind of a, a Madlumiya ideology, this 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 idea that we were oppressed and now we want to assert we were oppressed under Saddam and now we want to assert our identity. And they they really based all their politics. So really all the the the, the, the policies, the kind of welfare laws that have been impl- implemented after two thousand and three were all targeted towards the families that suffered under Saddam, right? And in a context where uh, people, uh, uh, I mean, experience uh, a war in 2003, then they experience a sectarian war in 2006 and 2007, uh, this, this priority given to uh, the shuhada or the maitais of the Ba'ath uh, doesn't make uh, really any sense anymore because now you have the martyrs of 2006 and 7 and then you have the martyrs of uh, uh, people who went and fought against Daesh in 2014 when Daesh was you know in, in, invaded uh, um, when Mosul was uh, uh, invaded by Daesh right? you have so the, the country has been through so much violence I mean, cycles and cycles and cycles of, of violence. I mean, when when you look at what's uh, going on, what happened in El Mosul, it's really an unspeakable violence. So you have a whole society that has been traumatized by this cycle of violence. And you have, on the other hand, an elite that uh, defines itself still in this mentality uh, that uh, is based on, on, you know, people who have lived outside Iraq uh, uh, um, uh, like for two decades before coming back in 2003. So the disconnect between the elite and the society is absolutely enormous, right? And, and, and this has, I mean, the, the sectarianization, the very fragmentation of Iraq has a, a concrete impact on the territory, of course. If you, if you, if you look at Baghdad after 2006 and 7, uh, Baghdad, I mean, 70% of Baghdad's population moved either within Baghdad in different neighborhoods, right? The neighborhoods in Baghdad became um, uh, homogenous. So you have homogeneously Sunni neighborhood and Shia neighborhood and, and a few kind of pockets of, 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 of Christians. Uh, and um, or, or uh, Iraqis uh, or Baghdadis have to, have to live outside of Baghdad or, have to, or had to leave the country, right? So you have, if you look just at the capital, if you walk around, you have uh, really um, a population that is physically uh, uh, divided, uh, uh, and 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 until until kind quite recently, you still had uh, uh, checkpoints and T walls uh, uh, dividing the different areas of 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 the city. So this, of course, has. I mean, incredible impact on how you define your political activism, on how you circulate uh, to go to Tahrir Square, for example, according to where you're from. If you're from a, a Shia neighborhood in, in, in the south of or, or the west of Baghdad, you will take certain certain roads, right? And it, of course, defines, I mean, the, this militarization of, of, of the... Of, uh, the public uh, public spaces uh, is uh, um, means as well for women that they have to go through a checkpoint that is guarded by uh, an armed uh, young man uh, at every corner of of of, uh, of of the city. So it means a lot in terms of gender norms and relations. And uh, of course, it has evolved. I mean, Baghdad is is, is way way better. I, I was in Baghdad just six months ago. And uh, uh, and I've been there regularly, and I think since really 2016, the security situation has been improving. There's less checkpoint you circulate, but and 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 what's going on now is that uh, the space is 
I would say the fragmentation of the space is not only along ethno-sectarian lines, but it's also along, of course, uh, um, I mean, class, uh, class, uh, it, it is class-based. I mean, it, it has always been class-based, but now a, a lot of spaces, a lot of, of, of um, part of Baghdad has been pr- uh, privatized uh, by, fam- by these uh, families belonging or affiliated to the political elite who opened huge, really enormous malls. Uh, we have, I don't know, maybe four or five malls just uh, just only in Baghdad, right? Uh, so you have a very um, so so you have a, a, a city that lacks very basic infrastructures and is is really left in disrepair in the sense that uh, the new uh, the new regime has done nothing to actually develop state infrastructures. But within this this context where you have very weak state infrastructures, you still have these en- enormous, luxurious malls, which uh, says a lot, right, about the direction Iraq is taking. Now, another key theme of uh, uh, this book, which is really fascinating, is the way you connect the, uh, you know, uh, women social and political activists in Iraq uh, with sort of the global bodies like the UN and international funding agencies and the interaction between them. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about this aspect of uh, the book and uh, how do these uh, uh, women social and political activists and Iraqi feminists contend with and negotiate the sort of uh, opportunities but also pressures and fissures that such transnational networks must uh, produce and uh, generate? Yes, I mean it's uh, it's good that you you ask me that now because it, I think it's also it will also allow me to then talk a little bit about uh, the protest movement, right? Because I think that there is a shift uh, happening at the moment. So, uh, especially if you I mean if you look at Kurdistan, what I call the enjoyization. So so the 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 emergence of organizations that are, are funded by international money, uh, whether from the, the US, the UN, European countries. I mean, this is a process that started in Kurdistan in 91. And really, if you look at uh, feminist activism there, the, the enjoyization is, is, is very strong. I mean, you also have grassroots and, and independent women's groups. However, um, I mean, in Iraq, if you look at um, so the rest of Iraq, it started in 2003. So uh, huge networks of, of, of funding were dedicated to women. And of course, it was accompanying the, 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 the occupy, occupying administration. It was in a way uh, uh, really with, in this kind of gender colonial discourse. We have to justify why we're there. We're bringing democracy. We're liberating women. So we're bringing the money as well. So, so uh, um, after 2003, you had the reemergence of certain old organizations that already exist, such as the Iraqi Women's League that I, I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. And you had really the mushrooming of, of so many uh, uh, um, women civil society organizations funded by uh, these international funds. You also have um, the Organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq, which is acting as more uh, of an independent organization and, and is kind of... Uh, I think um, a little bit different from from uh, other type of NGOs organization. Uh, however, it's still a traditional women's women's rights organization, right? That uh, um, uh, work around uh, uh, funding, etc. So, so um, I mean, of course, when when you live in a situation where the state has been completely destroyed, right? Uh, a destruction that started in the 90s, but really that was uh, uh, a kind of 
finished or uh, concluded in 2003, you can't really rely on the state, right? For, for, ve for very basic resources, such as access to electricity, water, I mean, really for the, the everyday survival, the state is really, uh, is really weak and its institutions are really lacking. And also because the state function uh, through, in a way that is uh, very ethno-sectarianized, uh, uh, it's actually very difficult uh, to obtain anything from the state. So you, in order to form your organization, in order to fund your activities, you're going to rely on these international funds. And that is going to define because it's always kind of um, uh, related to, so you, you receive money that is related to a specific project that has a target, a deadline. So it's for you as an activist, uh, it's kind of difficult to develop a vision uh, that is not influenced by these networks of funds. Right. So this this enjoyization is really something that uh, developed in, in the country. However, there is also uh, a grassroots forms of, of, of activism. And and I can really say that, especially since 2015, with the, the very first major protest movement uh, um, led by uh, young, uh, young middle class uh, uh, people, um, really this protest movement that uh, were articulating discourses and ag agendas outside of these organizations, right? Uh, uh, um, asking for the end of El so this Al-Muhassasa is the name we give in Iraq to uh, the institutionalization of ethno-sectarian and religious, um, uh, of an ethno, of a communal system in Iraq, right? So so people in 2015 took the street uh, and demanded the end of Al-Muhassasa, demanded uh, uh, um, uh, a, a stronger welfare state, demanded that the very, the, 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 the enormous wealth coming from the oil should be distributed to the to the general population so feminist uh, i mean many feminists participated actively to this protest movement and i think that it pushed many of them outside of the kind of ngos uh, um projects uh, project uh, targeted or uh, donor led type of agenda right but i think that uh, uh and, and, and in, in my book, in, in, in my chapter on Iraqi Kurdistan, I also try to talk a little bit about women who try to do things, concrete things, launch initiatives outside of any type of, of organization, right? Of, of, of any ways of, of, of formulating women's rights in, in kind of the proper or traditional way we do, right? And, and I mean, this has always existed, I think. And, and we see it even more now, uh, after two, uh, I mean, we had, so protest movement in 2015, uh, women really participated to this protest movement. Uh, uh but, uh, and we had uh, in 2018 a wide, very, a uh, very radical protest movement launch in, in Basra that really looked like the movement we are experiencing since two months now. So since two months, um, we are experiencing a, a very a wide, uh, enormous uprising in Iraq, uh, where in which uh, women and very young women are participating. And there are, I mean, the, the, the slogan of this protest movement is, is very simple, but in a way it carries, it, it's so, it's so, um, uh, it's so radical in its simplicity. So it says, Enrid Watan. So we want a homeland, right? So it's not, it's not articulating any kind of human rights or, you know, this kind of traditional, uh, uh, frame of, of, of thinking. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of very, 
very simple. We want a homeland, meaning we want services, we want a functioning state, we want we want to be free. But it's also articulating uh, demands. And for for example, young women within the protest movement, one of the slogan has been: "We want to live in Riden Aish. We want to live our life. We want to live our life outside of these uh, uh, normative, conservative societal norms. We want to live." And and the protest movement that started two months ago really was launched by even younger activists than the 2015 protest. It was long launched by uh, the generation of the 2000s, so people who are between the age of 14 years old to the age of maybe 21 years old. Those are the people who are uh, launching, I mean, uh, who are at the core of this revolutionary pro uh, process that we are experiencing. That is, it's not... It's not a Shia uprising, it's not a Sunni uprising, it is a youth uprising. Uh, perhaps that has a lot of similarities with other youth uprising happening, of course, in Lebanon, but also throughout the world, in, in Chile, in Haiti. Uh, all these uprisings are, of course, targeting issues of, of livelihood, right? But I think that in Iraq, it's also, uh, um, it's also a demand for living in dignity, for also rec reclaiming a sense of belonging and living together outside of the NGO, NGO's frame, outside of, of the politically correct type of framing, right? It's, it's really outside of all that. And it's also a celebration of, of being together uh, that is unfortunately also related to the death of, of so many people, of, of hundreds and hundreds of young, young people have been killed uh, um, by Iraqi security forces in the past two months. Now, you already did touch on this earlier when we were speaking, Zahra, but uh, maybe for the reminder of our listeners, um, uh, if you could talk a bit about this uh, category of the PSC, and in one of the chapters, you talked in very interesting ways about uh, the divergences between Sunni and uh, Shi'i uh, Islamist women activism concerning the PSC and the kind of differences that uh, came about. And uh, uh, through that, in that chapter also, you returned. Uh, to a theme that, of course, runs throughout the book, which is complicating this religion-secular binary that you talked about earlier in the beginning of our conversation. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, that argument that comes towards the end of the book. Yes, sure, sure. So, so, so um, the argument is is basically that if you look at uh, who advocated for uh, a sectarianization, so for uh, the kind of um, um, for a break with having a personal status code that gathers Sunni and Shia Muslims, you know, uh, uh, around the issues of of, of uh, marriage, inheritance, child custody, so uh, what is commonly called family laws, right? So, so the only ones who are actually advocating for a questioning of this unified personal status code uh, on sectarian basis, so were the Shia Islamist women, right? Uh, however. Uh, uh, the Sunni Islamist woman, of course, I mean, uh, uh, as uh, this uh, questioning was uh, promoted by the new political elite, the new Shia Islamist political elite and Sunni Islamists are marginalized. They are at, really at the margins of power. Uh, 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 Sunni uh, um, women uh, Islamists were against the sectarianization and considered that um, preserving one law that gathers Sunni and Shia is something that is beneficial for them, right? So they were articulating a, a, a more of a, they were aligning themselves with kind of secular uh, civil society activists. But when you look at, uh, it's interesting because in, if you look at in details, 
um, what uh, uh, these type of activists think and uh, around gender norms and relations. So I've, I've spent so much time with Islamist women activists, Sunni, Shia, Kurdish. And if you look really at uh, what they, their gender representation, the, the ways they define gender norms and relation, actually there's no real difference, right? Uh, they are kind of conservative in the same way and, and they have kind of a modernist, patriarchal understanding of Islam. Uh, uh, really similar. Uh, but then when it comes to the personal status code, they will have uh, uh, different positions. And this is when you understand that uh, it's really their, the, 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 the political sectarian identity that is uh, more than actually the sectarian religious identity that is kind of the issue in question, right? It is how actually Shia Islam has been politicized and Sunni Islam has been politicized differently in this post-2003 context that really counts in, in, this, in this discussion. So it, it is not about uh, secular versus religious because if you look at kind of their religious understanding of what gender norms and relations are, it's pretty similar. But then when it comes to a political issue, which is the personal status code, then there will uh, uh, there will be uh, um, completely in opposition with one another, based on a kind of political sectarian identity, but not a, a, a religious sectarian identity. Terrific. Uh, that is a final question, uh, sort of substantive question. I was wondering if we took a step back and have you reflect a bit about. Uh, how you would describe the intervention or the take-home point that you want readers to take from this book regarding uh, the intervention you make in the study of Iraq or the Middle East or uh, the study of um, gender and politics uh, in Muslim societies. So sort of the broader sort of uh, take-home point that you would want readers and listeners to go away with uh, after having read, uh, uh, to, uh, read this book. Yeah, so so I think uh, thank you so much <laughs> because that's uh, that's uh, that's something that actually helps me to to kind of, of summarize my main argument. I think that how it's 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 kind of related to how I teach actually when I teach the sociology of gender or feminist methodologies here at Rutgers. The the kind of main points that I always want to make sure that my students get, and it's kind of what I want to do in the book as well, is that we always need to conceptualize. Uh, uh, the categories um, to contextualize, sorry, the, the concepts and notions and category that we are using. We need to historicize them, and we need to analyze these categories in really in relation to each other. So it's it's kind of adding to complexity to all these debates around intersectionality, right? Uh, that. I mean, sometimes are kind of uh, uh, when when you look at at, at at the ways in which uh, it can be used. I mean, often it is used in a, in a beautiful way, but I think that sometimes it is used as if you have to put gender and then you have to put uh, uh, sexuality and then you have to put race and class and then you'll have a mix and you'll understand things. Well, what I try to do in the in in the book is to show that not only it's it's more complex than that, but Every single category is fluid and changing, right? And all these categories, when you analyze them in relation to each other, they really make sense only when you contextualize them, when you historicize them, when you 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 really uh, point out very clearly what you're talking about, right? So 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 you don't understand what the category religious mean in Iraq if you don't go through these you know complex issues that I mentioned. You don't understand what the category secular mean in Iraq if you you don't understand 
this and you know uh, what what I've been talking about uh, um, and all all the different layers and, and and I mean the social the economic the political etc uh, so this is kind of an idea and also I think that the one of the uh, Contribution. I mean, I really want to contribute to transnational feminist uh, um, understanding and approach uh, in really showing that uh, I think there are so many commonalities and so many things that feminists throughout the world can can learn from Iraqi feminists, right? And in a way, Iraq is specific, but it's not that specific, right? It's all about uh, the lens that that we use. So some of, I mean, one of the kind of theoretical intervention that I make at the beginning of my introduction when I talk about Saeed and, and the postcolonial, and I say that for me it's very important to uh, look at both the discursive and the material realities altogether. So, so uh, um, if you if you just limit yourself to discourses and and the way people kind of position themselves as a discourse, right? Uh, you would see a lot of dichotomy. You would you would you would see something that is called East and something like the Orient and something that is called the West. But when you actually look at the concrete realities of life and connect it to the discourses and the discursive realities and you know the kind of representation type of dimension you realize that we all live in the same colonial, capitalist, uh, uh, heterosexist uh, world, right? And, and that we all connected in these, in, in this different systems of power. Of course, differently, we position differently, but, but this is kind of also the transnational, I mean, feminist, uh, um, uh, statement that I'm making. Uh, what you, what feminists decide or the kind of activi- activism or for who, uh, the, I mean, for, for who the person that they, 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 they choose to, to vote vote for, right, or the different intervention they make, uh, um, has definitely an impact on, on what's going on in certain other parts of the world. Um, and, and I mean, I also wish that feminists who are not familiar with, uh, with the Iraqi context, with, uh, with uh, Muslim-majority countries or, or Arab countries, uh, would, would also... Um, I mean, gain from, from, from learning from the different challenges uh, 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 Iraqi feminists face and really realize how connected the struggles are. Um, uh, we can't, I mean, especially in the context when we are talking under Trump, right? I mean, this, what Denise Candioti uh, called the masculine restoration is something that, that has happened everywhere, Right, the, this rise of conservatism of of new forms of patriarchy is something that has happened everywhere. Right, uh, these anti these sexist backlashes, anti feminist backlashes that we are all experiencing, and of course, Iraqi feminist experiencing, uh, uh, you know, their position within these systems of power uh, are of course different. But I think that there's a lot of commonalities. So this is also one of the main ideas that I want to, I mean, kind of uh, uh, get in the book. <laughs> Terrific. And as we come to the end of our time, Zahra, would you uh, want to share with our listeners a bit about what you're thinking of as the next uh, project? Yes. So, um, uh, I mean, I've already done a lot of fieldwork w- uh, within uh, the protests, the different protest movement that happen in, in Iraq, in Baghdad, and also in the south of the country. And and I want to, I want to, I mean, I think continue uh, in really related, uh, first analyzing the ways in which feminists uh, connect and articulate uh, uh, the activism within this protest movement, but also just more generally, I am I'm, I'm aiming to write uh, to write about uh, uh, 
the development of this movement, what it means, how it helps us to actually renew the ways we theorize on civil society and political activism. Women and Gender in Iraq Between Nation Building and Fragmentation by Zahra Ali, uh, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. Uh, thank you so much, Zahra, for this. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you for your patience. Wonderful book <laughs> and for your conversation today. A real pleasure talking to you and I'm sure our listeners also really benefited from. Thank you. Thank you for the great questions. So this was my conversation with Professor Zahra Ali about her fantastic uh, new book, Women and Gender in Iraq. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you will also join us next time for another new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Bye.